visit of the Magi. This is Matthew, the second chapter, verses 1 through 3. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea during the time of King Herod, Magi came from the east and asked, Where is the one born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. When Herod heard this, he was greatly disturbed, and all of Jerusalem with him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Be seated, please. This morning on Epiphany Sunday, as we sort of wrap up the Christmas story, I want to give you two images to keep in your mind uh, as you go from here out into the world. The first image is of an eight-story condominium on top of a mountain. It is a condominium palace on top of a man-made mountain. It is one of the nine palaces of King Herod the Great. Uh, Herod, it was a flat territory, and Herod moved in dirt and built it up and then put a condominium on top of it. Uh, It was visible for miles around and from Jerusalem, and so it's quite likely scholars believe that later on when Jesus is standing on the Mount of Olives, he'll point at that man-made mountain called the Herodium after King Herod and say, if you had to face the grain of a mustard seed, you could say to that mountain, get up and move, and it would have moved, and it would move. And the people would believe it because they would have seen it move once. A mountain from nowhere with a palace on top and the world's largest swimming pool on the bottom. Then another image I want you to have is a cave. A cave, uh, another word we might have for it is manger. It's a place where you take the sick and, and the young sheep on, on, uh, on uh, cold nights like tonight and you put them in there and keep them warm and the the more the younger and the the sicklier ones are closer uh, inside more inside the cave and then the healthier you are you go you fan out to the outside. These two images: a condominium palace and a cave with sheep, donkeys, and the stuff that goes with sheep and donkeys. I want to talk with you this morning about the contrast between King Herod the Great and Jesus. And the downside is I can talk a long time about um, King Herod. Donna tried to stop me at the last service, but I missed the hook. And that may happen again this service. Um, But I think it's not an accident that God has them on the stage of history roughly the same time. King Herod was called King Herod the Great, not by himself, but by other people. His official title was given by the Roman Senate when he was 33 years old. The Roman Senate proclaimed him king of the Jews and friend of the Romans. He was such an amazing character that other people nicknamed him the Great. Part of what was amazing about him is that he was a very astute and powerful man. He was a powerful ruler. He ruled uh, what we would call Israel and Judea, but also ruled a desert kingdom called Idumea. He came from Idumea, which was a desert area, and he married in, in one of these arranged marriages, the closest thing to royalty that Israel had, a woman named Miriam, who was um, an ancestor of, uh, of the Maccabees who led the revolt. So she was uh, as close to royalty. So when the, the two got together, the whole area became his, and the Romans were pleased to have him rule it because he ruled it ably and uh, with great uh, efficiency. And in fact, uh, the, 
Israel and Judea reached heights of power and prosperity under King Herod the Great that they had not seen since King David 1,000 years earlier. Now, I know you don't believe this, but back in that day, the Middle East was a very volatile region. And uh, lots of competing factions, lots of disagreements. So the amazing thing about Herod is he could keep all that under control. And so the Romans were very impressed with him. He was a powerful ruler. He was a very wealthy man, the wealthiest man of his time. Some scholars believe he's the richest man who ever lived. His, his money came from two sources. The first was this. He was from the southern kingdom, Idumea, and now adding the uh, northern part of Israel and Judea, he basically controlled the Arabian spice trade route. So when spices would trade, would go from Arabia, whether up to Egypt, or they would fan out and go to Babylon, or they would go up and then turn to go to Asia Minor, they had to pass through Herod's territory, and he could, he could tax them. Have you, did anybody, have you ever seen the movie Indiana Jones? in the Holy Grail. Do you remember where they found the Grail at the end in that rather amazing uh, uh, palace kind of place? It's, it's, at, it's at Petra and it's in Jordan. And that's built not by Herod, though he built amazing things, but that's built with spice trade money. That's how filthy rich people who could tax the spice trade and spice traders became. So he had all of that. But on top of that, he cornered the, uh, the production and distribution of something known as balsam. Balsam was an aphrodisiac. The Romans believed if you put a little dab behind your ear, you were irresistible to the opposite sex at 50 paces. And they were so impressed with this stuff that it sold for more per ounce than gold. And the only guy on the planet who manufactured it was Herod himself. In fact, I visited the ruins of one of his uh, production facilities and manufacturing facilities. And basically, it's, it's, it's a three-room structure with walls between the three so that people in room one can't get to room two and people in room two can't get to room three so that nobody knows the recipe. It's like Coca-Cola. They're just not going to tell you. And Herod controls the whole thing. And he builds an amazing port at a place called Caesarea. It's on the, on the Mediterranean. So that he can, he can ship in Caesar's soldiers to help keep the peace. And he can ship out boatloads of balsam and make zillions of dollars. As I mentioned, many people believe he's much richer than, say, Bill Gates is today. So the guy's powerful. The guy's rich. The guy is pretty amazing. He's an Olympic gold medal winner. Uh, he won it in the javelin. But he's so rich that he's also the title sponsor of the Olympics. You know, tomorrow night, Vizio brings you the NCAA championship game. Crud, every four years, Herod brought you the Olympics. And in fact, in the Parthenon, there was, in Athens, there was a statue of King Herod. All the Greek gods, and then there's Herod. And then there was also a statue of him at the Forum in Rome. This guy was wealthy, and he was impressive. He had nine palaces, at least. Some think as many as twelve. Every one of them was larger than the palace that Caesar himself lived in, in Rome. And every one of them was an engineering marvel of some kind. Like the man-made mountain, the Herodium. Out in the, way out in the desert by the Dead Sea was something known as Masada. You've probably seen pictures. So on top of this, this real mountain, not man-made, he builds a fortress on top of that. Uh, he also built a natural harbor at Caesar, I mean, built a harbor, a man-made harbor where there was no natural harbor at Caesarea on the Mediterranean. And so you can imagine a more than 100 feet deep uh, archaeologists have found concrete forms for the harbor. Friends, there's no scuba gear in this day. And Herod figured out how to do that. Also, by the way, at Caesarea, 
for you sports fans, is, is something known as the Hippodrome. The Hippodrome is like a large arena, and you could have gladiator fights in the Hippodrome, or you could um, have chariot races in the Hippodrome, or my favorite, you could flood it with water and have ship fights. And people come in, they watch the ships fight each other. Do you know how big this thing was? Three times the size of the Rose Bowl. 300,000 people could fit into Herod's facility. If it's larger than that, it must also be larger than AT&T Stadium. Don't tell Jerry Jones. Herod was amazing. Rich, powerful, able, and by the way, very ruthless. This was a guy who was not going to have any rivals to his throne. Um, his favorite wife was a woman named Miriam, and he married her to unite Idumea and the Israel Judea kingdoms. And uh, uh, she had a younger brother who was a teenager, but very brilliant, very capable, a great administrator, looked like he could come on up in Herod's footsteps. Herod noticed that, so he had his favorite wife's little brother killed. One of his sons, he thought, was getting a little too close to the throne. So he held a banquet at his fortress in Jericho and put his son on a spit. And at each, uh, each course, as the, as the course changed from one course to another at the dinner, he would rotate his son another turn on the spit until he was burned to death. This was Herod. Herod had come to the attention of the Romans uh, almost 40 years earlier when he put down a, a, a revolt by what he called brigands or robbers. We would call them poor peasants who were being overtaxed by the Romans. And so they, they rose up and Herod slaughtered thousands of them. Right before Jesus was born, the peasants rose up again in the Galilee region. And Herod, uh, this time as King Herod, slaughtered them Again, In fact, many people believe that uh, the Apostle Paul's mom and dad were arrested in that tax revolt, carted off um, uh, uh, to Tarsus and when, as slaves. And when, they, uh, when their master freed them as freed Roman slaves, they became Roman citizens. And that's, by the way, how Paul became a Roman citizen. Uh, but you know, Herod was so ruthless. He took, uh, as a lesson, he took your grandparents and hung them. Uh, over the doorpost or, uh, or, on, or on top of the house where everyone could see and crucified them. And he wiped out an entire village. Have you ever heard the name Mary Magdalene? That's because she's from a town called Magdala. Well, Mary ain't going back to Magdala because it's not there anymore. Herod destroyed it in 4 BC. Just leveled the town, killed Thousands. There were people hiding in caves. He tossed torches into the caves to burn them alive. This is Herod. He's ruthless. He finally uh, knew he wasn't liked. So as one of his final acts, what he did was he had 4,000 Jewish elders, uh, rabbi types. Rabbi wasn't an office. It was like a title of honor or respect. And, and he kept them by his, Jer- his Jericho palace. And on the day of his death, he instructed his, uh, his uh, people serving him to execute those 5,000 noble elders so that people in Israel would mourn the day of his death. Well, an interesting thing happened. He's at one of his nine palaces. His wife, Miriam, one of his 11 wives, is at another palace. And rumor comes that Herod has died. So she talks to his chief advisor, and they decide, we're not going to put 5,000 people to death because he died, so they don't execute his order. Well, just like Mark Twain, the rumors of Herod's death were greatly exaggerated. 
very much alive, he came back to that palace, decided that his wife and the advisor who had not carried out his order were actually having an affair. He believed this because Herod's sister was jealous of all of his wives and she'd kind of whisper in his ear about how terrible his wives were. And uh, so he put them to death for adultery and treason. Then the rest of his life, this was his favorite wife, Miriam, he'd see her ghost and he would talk to her all the time and imagine that she was there. This is Herod. And so it is no surprise that when word comes that a king has been born, that Herod sends the instructions to go and massacre all the children two years old and younger that he can find in Bethlehem. Now, I know there are scholars, not the majority, by the way, minority of scholars who say never happened. You don't read of it outside the Bible. The Bible is just making it up so it can go along with the Moses story in Exodus. I got two responses to that. The first one is this. Are you kidding me? A guy who would kill his own wife, kill his own children, kill thousands of peasants, won't knock off a few babies? Secondly, of course it's not written up in history. Bethlehem is a very small town. There can't be that many babies there even visiting. It's not even going to make the B section of the paper in Israel. There's just not that many. Well, they had an N. Now, nah, one of Motel 6. The word for inn, as we've talked about before, means like large front room that you, you host uh, relatives who come. Even today in Bedouin communities, that there's, you'll find them with large front rooms. You know, it might be a trailer and then a large front room attached or a big tent and a large front room uh, that is with it. And so likely what happened in this very small town, Joseph goes to his family looking for a place to stay while he enrolls for the taxes and there's already, it's already full because there are other family members there. Or because they see he is with an unwed pregnant woman. That the scandal's too much so they won't take her in. We don't really know which it was. But what they did do, fortunately, is somebody finally allowed them to go to a manger. And a manger, as I mentioned, is more like a cave. It's where you shelter animals on a cold uh, night. So this is Herod. This is Jesus. Three observations before we leave them for a while. The first is this. The first Christmas was an act of tremendous courage on the part of Mary and Joseph. Um, They had to know if what the angel had told them was true, and they had no reason to think it wasn't true, that they were carrying the king, that Herod was not going to think very kindly about that. That Herod would make a move on that, which in fact he did. So a long journey, and they pass right by. I mean, the only way to get from Nazareth to Bethlehem is to pass right under the shadow of that eight-story condo on the man-made mountain where it's likely Herod is in residence because that was one of his favorite places to hang out. What courage, because were they stopped for any reason? If Herod would find out, they'd be dead. Well, you might think Mary's on a fast donkey. But it's not likely that Mary's on a donkey. Donkeys were like, um, you know, Mercedes-Benz, Lamborghini, Ferrari. Mary and Joseph can't afford that. She's walking, friends. She's pregnant. She's walking. If she's discovered, she's dead. That's the first Christmas. Now, I don't know what star word you get this morning. And as you've already heard, there's a difference. The fundamentalist star people like me want you just to take one. Matt, with a more open interpretation of the star at 8.30 service, said if you didn't like the one you got, you might be able to trade. But I don't know if there's a word in there for courage. 
But you need to take that word home anyway. Christmas is about courage. It's about being who God has called you to be, where God has placed you, no matter the task. And that's what Mary does. Second lesson I want you to take for this is that the real king is in a manger surrounded by animal dung. The fake king is on the eighth floor of his condo. Appearances are deceiving. Things are never what they seem on all the way through the Bible. We see that. So it's always too early to judge an event as good or bad. It's always too early to give up hope because we really know, don't know what's going on behind the scenes. It turns out Herod won't last but about another year. And Jesus will start a kingdom that's still here 2,000 years later. Appearances are deceiving. We sometimes are too quick to make a judgment on something. And then most importantly, when I look at the story, I realize that Herod wanted to do things in a big way, a big splash. He had important friends like Octavian Augustus. Mark Antony was his best friend before he died. Cleopatra tried to seduce him. I mean, he runs in big circles, big palaces, big splash. God sends a baby that nobody even knows about. In a little town, very few people care about. God always, or most often, comes in the small acts. Whoever it was in the family that said, you can have the cave in the back. Whoever it was that encouraged them and helped them on their journey. Those people did acts that are not recorded Their names are not recorded in history, but the effects of what they did still live on 2,000 years later. The important things that you do probably don't seem important to you at the time, and they may not even be noticed by anybody else. Jesus said that the kingdom would come like a mustard seed. That God is always in the small. And the important things you do this year are probably the stuff you're going to do one-on-one. With a person that nobody has noticed noticed, or something that no one will ever read about. But it will turn things. It will make a difference. And one day you'll figure it out. The ripples from what you've done will carry on and on. I believe one of the reasons we're in heaven for eternity is it takes that long to try to figure out all the good things we did and where they ended up. The time we stopped and helped this person. The time we went across the street and called on this person. The time we... All of that. We don't know at the time, but the small effects in God's economy, the small acts always have large effects. One of the things the rabbis taught in the days of Jesus was that we should think of the world in, in terms of a, a balance right now, equal balance between good and evil. And the very next action we take in the world tips the world either toward good or evil. That our very next act, no matter how small, is the tipping point for the entire world. You never know that small thing you do today, tomorrow, the next day, where it goes and what it might do. But I assure you, it goes further than you realize, and it does more than you can ever know, just the same way the first Christmas went that way. A couple centuries ago in America, one of the ways that people got communication was actually through the mail. I mean, rural mail carriers. And so they would bring mail to community, but they would also let you know what was going on maybe in the state capital or what was going on in the neighboring town. And so the story is told of a rural mail carrier in Kentucky who 
who is going on his round. So imagine like if I'm leaving from the office in San Antonio, I carry the mail to Bernie and they find out what's, I find out what's up in Bernie. So I take the news to Comfort. They find out. I go back to San Antonio. The news from Bernie and Comfort goes to San Antonio and it makes a cycle like this. And you're not only just a mail person, you're, you're a news caster in many ways. And so as a part of his job on this uh, spring day in the rural area of Kentucky, the mailman gets there with the mail, stops at the kind of center part of this very rural little town and says, anything happening here? And the guy thinks about it for a moment according to what's recorded in history. He says, you know, nothing much ever really happens here. And he thought for a moment on that spring day in 1809 and then added to the mail carrier, well, Mr. and Mrs. Lincoln did have a little baby boy. It would be 50 years before people would come to understand the significance of that act in a small rural town in a place hardly anybody knew about. That's the way God's kingdom works. Small acts of goodness that you and I do, seen or unseen, often have effects more than we can ever imagine.